If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. As we gather together on this Good Friday to remember the death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, rather than do what I have done in the past and focus on a smaller passage, I thought it might be helpful to consider the entirety of Jesus' last day on earth, which leads up to his death on the cross. And so as we think about this last day over chapters 22 and 23, we can summarize what we're going to see in four scenes. We're going to see the cup, the courtyard, the condemnation, and the cross. First we see in uh, Luke chapter 22, Jesus' agony before the cup. His agony before the cup. Because the Jews considered evening the start of a day, we begin on Thursday evening to Friday evening for the last day of Jesus' life. And so at this point, Jesus and his disciples have celebrated Passover together. He has instituted the Lord's Supper. Judas has left the company of the other disciples in order to betray Jesus, though they thought he was going out to distribute money to the poor in celebration of Passover. It is now late in the evening, and Jesus and the 11, and the 11 that are left depart from that upper room. Luke picks up the story at verse 39. Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus exhorts his disciples to pray that they may not enter in temptation because that is exactly what he is going to do. He is going to experience one final temptation to turn away from the cross and he is going to be watchful over his soul, praying to help for God that he might not succumb to that temptation. And Jesus has already predicted that his disciples would be tempted to flee and to scatter and to run away and deny him. And so he's telling them to be watchful, to pray that they may not succumb to that temptation. The hour is now almost upon them, and he tells them to be ready by praying for help. Verse 41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Now the custom for the Jews in his day would not have been to kneel uh, praying, would not have been to sit, it would have been to stand with arms outstretched, with eyes open, looking to God in heaven, uh, praying, pleading their case. But Jesus here knelt down. And in fact, the Gospels make it clear that he didn't stay kneeling for long. Eventually, he fell face down on the ground, prostrate before God, because we're told his soul was sorrowful even unto death. What made Jesus so desperate before God in prayer? Given what is to come in just a few hours, some might suppose it was just the fact that he was going to die. We, we fear death, and that made him sorrowful. But it's not just his death, it's rather what the death will mean. What will happen that will cause his death that has Jesus so sorrowful and so and praying so intently? Verse 42, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in, an, in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And he sweat like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What does he pray for? What is so burdensome to him? It is this cup which he envisions before him. He says, Father, remove, take away this cup from me. What is that cup? Well, we know from the Old Testament context, the imagery that's there, that it is in fact the cup of God's wrath that Jesus will take up and drink. Just 
12 hours from this point, he will hang on a cross as the propitiating sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he will feel then what he has never felt before. For all eternity, he has been in loving fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. He has been the supreme object of the Father's affection and love. And that will not change. The Father will still love him even while he hangs on the cross. Nevertheless, he will also become the supreme object of the Father's wrath. This is why Jesus recoils from death. It wasn't death that that he was afraid of. It was this cup of wrath that he wanted to stay away from. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. I think John MacArthur is absolutely right when he says, we cannot comprehend the depth of Jesus' agony because as sinless and holy God incarnate, he was able to perceive the horror of sin in a way that we cannot. Christ is horrified of the cross because of his complete and utter holiness. You know, today we, you know, we... uh, even as God's people, we sin all the time. We, 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 we play with it. We do not flee temptation. We, we dangle at it. And, and, and sometimes even once we've sinned, we feel like, oh, that wasn't that bad of a deal. It wasn't that big of a deal. But for someone who is completely sinless, someone who is completely holy, the embodiment of everything that makes God as a holy God, to be considered a sinful object and bear God's wrath against sin was absolutely unthinkable. It was horrifying to Christ. Jesus will not take up the cup of this wrath for anything he has done before him is not his cup. It's our cup. It's the cup that we deserve, the cup that we should be taking and drinking down because of our rebellion and sin before God. It's what we deserve. And so on the cross, when the Father pours out his wrath, it is not upon Jesus, but rather upon our sins, and Jesus is standing in our place taking that wrath for us. Notice, though, that Jesus doesn't just say, remove this cup if you are willing. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus will not consider the taking away of the cup unless the Father wills it. Why? Because he trusts his God. He trusts his heavenly Father. And he understands the salvation that's going to be accomplished through his agonizing experience of the cross. Again, it's a great contrast between us, isn't it? Because we can go through um, some pretty, by comparison, mild circumstances. Difficult, but mildly difficult, no less. And what do we do? We are tempted to say, well, God doesn't care about me. He's abandoned me. He doesn't love me. He's forgotten all about me. Look at all this difficulty I'm going through. Where is God? And what Jesus understands is that even going through the worst possible circumstances, God has not forgotten him. He trusts God. He believes God. He trusts him enough to go to the cross, to take up that agonizing cup and drink it down to its dregs. From this agonizing prayer before the cup, we move then to see Jesus' abandonment beside the courtyard. His abandonment beside the courtyard. Luke continues the scene telling us in verse 48, while he was still speaking, that is Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. We know from the other Gospels, this is in fact Peter who is ready to do what he said he would do in the upper room. He said that he would, he would suffer and die or do prison for Jesus. 
But Jesus says, this is not the time for that. that. That's not what I'm about. It's not what I'm going to accomplish. My kingdom is not going to come by the sword. So he says, no more of this. Verse 51, and he touched his ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. As Jesus is arrested and the disciples flee off into the night, Peter doesn't go far. He abandons Jesus, if only for a short while. And yet notice, he continues to follow, though at a distance, Luke says. Now, (coughs) when I read that, I think not just of the physical location of Peter, the crowd is ahead. He's kind, of, he's kind of hanging back, but he's still tracking. He's still following to see what is going to happen with Jesus. But, but I think about our own lives sometimes. And what, a, what an amazing picture, a metaphor that is for how we follow Jesus. Not in the intimate fellowship that we should. Not walking side by side, as it were. Not a loving, joyful fellowship, but rather at a distance. We've not lost the faith. We've not given up. We've not turned our back on Christ. But we are not following him as we should. We are far away, at a distance. That's true not just of Peter's physical location, but also his heart. Verse 55, when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them. A servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking close to him, said, this man was also with him, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval but an hour, still another insistent saying, certainly this man was with him, for he too is Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him three times by the time the rooster crowed, and that prophecy has come to fulfillment. Phil Riken wisely points out that the true test of our discipleship is not seen in the promises that we make, but in our witness to the world. We, we can come to a gathering like this and sing all of the songs, offer all the smiles. We can act as if we have everything put together in the midst of church, but what is our life like when we leave these doors? Well, what is life like when we're on our own, away from the eyes of those that we are in covenant fellowship with? Do we play at being a disciple, or do we really live like one? How is it seen in our daily priorities? How is it seen in our clear witnessing to Christ and His transforming work in our lives? Or do we just live in any way we can, driven by the desire to be as comfortable as we can? Peter's denied Jesus three times, just as (coughs) was prophesied before. The rooster crows, and notice verse 61. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. I can hardly imagine the stab of pain in Peter's heart at that moment, what it must have been like to look into the eyes of the man that just hours before you have pledged to be with until death. If they're coming for you, they're coming for me, Peter said. If you're going to go down with a sword, I'm going down with a sword. And it was three strangers just identifying Peter as an associate of Jesus, and he's out. He's gone. A servant girl. What kind of a sword is she carrying? A 
It's not surprising in verse 62 that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter sees his sin and he grieves. But more than simply regretting what he did, we know that Peter actually repents of it. How did he come to repentance? Through Jesus. The look that Jesus gives, I don't think, is one of condemnation, but one of sympathy. It's one that signals to him, I told you this was going to happen. Don't let it destroy your faith. Say, how can you know that? Because earlier, when he said that he's going to fall away, Jesus also said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, when you have turned away from me and then turned back again towards me, go and strengthen your brothers who have also committed the sin of abandonment. Jesus is looking at him in a way to remind him of the encouragement he's given him and to draw him to repentance and faith. Commenting on this passage, B.B. Warfield says, As our Savior was being tried and preparing to bear the sins for us all on the cross, he had time to give one glance to a faltering disciple and so save his soul in the saving of the world. How much more will he even today look at us when we are faltering? If we are a disciple of Jesus, we can probably relate to Peter's experience. We can relate to failing Jesus. We can relate to confessing Jesus with our lips, but denying him with our lives. But there is hope for us just as there was for Peter. We need only look to Christ to not only see the seriousness of our sin, but also to remember his promised word of forgiveness. Only then... Well, we experience not just regret, but genuine repentance and therefore be restored to fellowship with Christ. Not only was Christ abandoned, but third, we see the sheer arrogance and the condemnation he received by the Jewish and Roman leaders. Arrogance and the condemnation. Jesus has surrendered himself into the hands of the authorities. He was not a victim of fate. He was not ground down by the wheels of chance as one Scholar has said, even here, Jesus is Lord. All of this is under his control. Yet in allowing himself to be delivered up, he's also surrendering all of the rights and privileges he deserves as Lord. We see Christ's glory in sharp contrast to how he is treated, not in a manner worthy of his glory at the end of chapter 22. Verse 63 the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who was that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They led him away to their council and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. As we think about these hours that Jesus endures, it's with great indignity that he endures them. He goes through this. We've seen him demeaned, abused, treated shamefully in unimaginable ways. We see the people that he's came to save deny that he has the power to save, that he is the promised Messiah. When you, when you begin to feel the, the, uh, the kind of pit in your stomach for Jesus, remember that all the indignity that he went through, he did so for you on his way to the cross. 
Luke goes on to record for us the trial of Jesus. And here we see how an innocent man can be found guilty and sentenced to death. In chapter 23, verse 1, Then the whole accused company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowns, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now before, when he's just with the Jews, blasphemy was the charge. That he was blaspheming God. Blasphemy is the sin for which they condemned Jesus. But here's the rub. The Jews have no authority to execute anyone because they're under Roman occupation. They are subject to Roman law. Only Rome has the authority to issue a death sentence. More than that, the Romans do not consider blasphemy a crime worthy of death. It's not a capital crime. I mean, there's how many gods throughout the Roman Empire? You know, who cares if you, if you utter a curse against one? So what do they need? They need some kind of a sinful scheme in order to have charges that will get the attention of Rome, something other than blasphemy that will cause them to see Jesus as being worthy of death. And so notice in these verses, they accuse him of three things. Number one, political sedition, turning the Jews from Roman loyalty, rejecting taxes to Rome, perhaps to raise arms to fight an uprising against them. And finally, setting himself up as a rival authority. Jesus is saying that he is king, not Caesar. Now, is Jesus guilty of these things? Not at all. Go home tonight and read the first uh, 21 chapters of Luke, and you'll see that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is. But Pilate has to take him seriously, and he questions him at first and doesn't find anything wrong with him, so he sends him to Herod because he's in Galilee, and he tries to throw it off and say, well, he's in your jurisdiction. But Jesus refused to answer any of his questions. And through the chief priest, the scribe stood by vehemently accusing him. We're told in verse 10 of chapter 23. Then in verse 11, Luke says that Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Or then arraigned him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate says, Why do you want to kill this guy? He's done nothing worthy of death. Let me just release him. And listen, I know you're upset with him. I know you're angry with him. So I'll beat him up a little bit. That's what punish and release means. I'm going to have him beat and then I will release him. Well, the people will have none of it. Verse 18, they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. 
Rather than embrace Jesus, they ask for Barabbas. And Luke tells us this was a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder. Do you comprehend the bewildering irony here? All of the charges, the false charges they placed on Jesus in order to have him executed by Rome, this man Barabbas is actually guilty of. It is unimaginable hypocrisy of this crowd, especially the religious leaders. They've brought Jesus before Pilate, claiming he's a terrorist, he's leading an uprising in the nation against Rome, therefore he deserves death. And when he's found innocent, they don't believe it, they don't buy it, they don't want him released. Instead, they demand the release of the guy who is a terrorist. Barabbas had been rightfully accused, he'd been fairly examined, and he had been justly condemned for his crimes, murder and sedition. Yet rather than let this man be killed as he deserved, they said, free him, let him go, let him be innocent and kill Jesus instead. Jesus, a man who is innocent in every way, will die condemned in the place of a man who was guilty in every way. And it's a clear picture one of the most clear pictures in all the Bible of what Christ is going to accomplish on the cross. The innocent taking the place for the guilty. Christ taking our place before God on the cross. By being a substitute before God, suffering condemnation that sinners deserve, though he himself was never guilty of anything, Jesus bore the guilt for the sins of his people. It's the perfect illustration of God's salvation. Salvation that was accomplished by atonement through the cross. This is the last thing that we see in these two chapters. Atonement through the cross. At this point, Jesus has already endured physical brutality that most, if not all of us, will, will never experience ever in our lifetimes. This is why as they led him away, he was unable to bear his own cross. Remember, the Romans would have led this condemned man down the streets. It was, it was uh, if you can imagine today, if they were going to execute someone and they had a television crew there and as they followed the guards down to the cell and they unlocked the cell and opened it up and they brought him out still cuffed and shackled, one on each, uh, one on each side uh, yelling dead man walking as they go down through the prison taking him to uh, receive lethal injection the whole time the cameraman is there panning through broadcasts across television. That's what Rome was trying to do. By leading the condemned person to be crucified through the streets, they were trying to send a warning and saying, if you cross us, this is what's going to happen. You'll get the cross. And normally they would have the prisoner, the, the condemned person, carry the, 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 the cross beam, the part that goes from side to side as he went up to the cross to be crucified. But Jesus is too weak. He's endured too much physical brutality. That's why verse 26 they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now at this point, as well as thinking about the crucifixion, we are tempted to focus on the physical brutality that Jesus endured. In fact, that's what drives most uh, television and, and film versions of this part of Jesus' life. And while films want to linger on and make a big deal about the violence, you'll notice the Gospels report that it happens, then moves on. It is historical fact, but it's not the meaning of the cross. It is not the physical brutality that Jesus goes through that is so important. Rather, it is Him enduring the wrath of God that brings salvation. And that's the focus of Scripture. Notice in verses 32 and 33, Jesus is not the only man crucified that day. 
Luke says that the two other men were criminals. They were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. It's a terrible irony. The, the perfectly righteous man was condemned and crucified as if he were guilty like these criminals, but it wasn't ironic at all. It was actually the promised plan of God. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53 that Messiah would pour out his soul to death on the cross and there be numbered with the transgressors. He would be counted as a guilty man. It's a dishonorable thing, but it's also God's will. It pointed to the work once again of substitution, Jesus in place of sinners. But that's not all. Verse 34, the Romans cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Despite the fact the Romans invented crucifixion and the specifics of those mocking and deriding Jesus on the cross would come hundreds of years later in Psalm 22, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus descri- David rather describes his own pain and suffering at the hands of his enemies in a, w- in a way that foreshadows Christ. Having his hands and his feet pierced through, having dogs, Gentiles around mocking him. Luke wants to show us again and again and again, as he has for the last 23 chapters, that all the events that are taking place in Jesus' life are not happenstance. They're not an accident. They're not just the the, the whims of him and the crowd, but all of this is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan, a plan that was promised in in the writings of the old covenant and is now being fulfilled as Jesus begins the new covenant. Amazingly, amidst the injustice, the violence, the mocking, and the hatred, Jesus does the unexpected. From the cross, he calls out to God in prayer saying, Father, forgive them, verse 34. Forgive them for they know not what they do. That is the character of the promised king of the Jews. Even in the face of open rebellion, here is a savior that is patient with sinners. As one pastor explains, this prayer does not absolve either the Jews or the Romans of their responsibility in Jesus' death. But it shows they did not fully understand the horrible evil that they were doing in crucifying the Holy and Righteous One, who was both the true Messiah and the Son of God. Verse 39, Luke says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us! But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That moment, Jesus is looking forward past the coming hours when he will bear the fullness of God's wrath against sin. And he assures this man that together they will be with his father in paradise. In dying, Jesus will conquer death. And because of sheer grace, grace through faith alone, what else could this man hanging crucified, what else could he possibly have? He will be with Jesus that day. And the promise that Jesus makes to him is based on what is to come. Verse 44. It was about the sixth hour, noon for us. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded. And the curtain of the temple 
was torn into. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances acquaintances, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Just as he promised throughout the gospel and just as God the Father had promised in the Old Testament, Jesus takes upon himself the wrath of God. Here for these three hours, he is symbolically drinking down that cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And God signals that this is what is happening even in those hours. The people would have remembered the significance of darkness as a sign of God's judgment. But they would have also thought about what was happening at the temple. The ancient historian Josephus, a devout Jew and no believer in Christ, records that it was in the morning about the ninth hour that the priest offered the daily sacrifices for Israel. So as the priests are fulfilling their duty in darkness, a better high priest is offering himself as a better sacrifice on the cross. Everything those sacrifices represented for a millennia are finding their fulfillment in Christ. No more sacrifice was needed. The curtain is torn in two and direct access to God is now made possible through Christ. For here on the cross, Jesus endured the fullness of hell that his people might experience heaven and the joy of forgiveness for their sins. No blood of a bull or a goat could ever do that, but the precious blood of Jesus can and did. On the span of just three hours on the cross, Perfect, lasting, final atonement was made so that pardon could be granted to all those who look to Jesus in faith. From the opening verses of this gospel, Luke has been building to this climax, the atoning death of Jesus, which brings salvation to sinners. And here we see the glory of Christ our Savior. But even as darkness covers the land and perhaps even our own souls in grief over Jesus' death, Luke isn't finished story isn't over. The gospel isn't complete. There is more glory to behold. Even now, Jesus has promised that death will not have victory over him. His death was only a prelude to his resurrection and the promise of new life for his people. It's Friday, as one preacher has said, but Sunday's coming. Father, we're so thankful for the cross. So thankful, God, that our Savior was willing to take up that cup of your wrath and drink it down for us. Father, we pray that all of us here might be strengthened in our faith in Him and our desire to be thankful for the salvation that has come through Him, but also our desire to live as faithful disciples before Him. Father, I pray if there are those here that have never trusted in Christ, having heard this gospel message, this good news of salvation by faith alone and not by anything that we do, Christ has done it all, that they would put their faith in Him and believe. Father, we pray, Lord, that as we think about all the work of Your Son, we would come to see that He is our Savior and He is our King. He is the Lord over all things. May we give Him the worship that he deserves.